We're working through the good news of Jesus that John created, and we find this careful record of signs and conversations. These are, John lets us know, carefully chosen to help his audience see what it is Jesus is accomplishing. We get to look over their shoulders. Now we've seen the miracle of changing the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. We were able to listen in with John as Nicodemus conversed with Jesus one night. Then there was a very different interchange with the Samaritan woman. Although, of course, Jesus shared many of the same truths. Last, there was the official, a man who finally sought out, was drawn by God when his son lay at the point of death. And now we have a pivotal, a critical sign. And it's a sign that's different from all the others. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed. But first, we want to consider the wonderful spiritual imagery and Understand, it is not accidental. They're on purpose. When this wall was built in Nehemiah's day, they constructed a gate through which the sheep, which were to be sacrificed at the temple for their sins, was brought. Okay, now how was it that John the Baptist identified Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that great? And there's even more than that. Bethesda is the contraction of two Hebrew words. Beth, which means house. And hased, which we've talked about a lot here. Hased is difficult to translate, but kindness, loyalty, faithfulness, loving kindness, steadfast love. These are all used by various translators to grasp the richness of this word. I told you before of Dr. Ostell, who after 80 years... He was over in his mid-80s, had been translating the Bible for more than 50 years. He thought said the most important Hebrew word there was. How in the world are we going to do it? Well, sometimes the English word mercy is used. Beth said, house of mercy. Yeah, I love how God puts things, puts things together, right? Well, let's get a clear mental picture of the physical setting for this miracle. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five rough colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. The pool called Bethesda was probably actually two pools kind of interconnected with five porches, whatever you want to call them, five large covered areas in which people could gather, protected from that hot Mideastern sun that burns over there. They needed shade. They didn't like us. We like sun, they like shade. So these five big areas are covered by roofs with huge columns. And this complex is huge. It's, it's bigger than a football field, considerably larger than a football field. So picture in your mind these two large, so we call them swimming pools, with five great lounging areas that are arranged all around them. Um, maybe there's one between the two pools, and maybe there's four, we don't know, but arranged somehow all around them. We're not exactly sure what it looked like, but these were pretty common throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, they were very Roman in nature. They were built by the local rulers. 
well, first to honor themselves. <laughs> they wanted to gain honor. They wanted to buy honor for themselves. Uh, but it was also to appease the local citizens, give them a beautiful place to go. Herod the Great built a number of projects similar to these in that area, all for the pleasure of the rich people who kept him in power. But then, that beautiful complex, the whole thing gets overrun by lots and lots of sick people. They all gathered there because of a superstition, a superstition that promised them healing. You can imagine, most regular people avoided Bethesda. <laughs> this wasn't a pleasant place to be, but of course this is Jesus, so he does not. And now our other person enters the story. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, now we're, we're walking, the disciples and Jesus, they're walking through an area with hundreds, maybe over a thousand sick people there. Lame, blind, everything. And Jesus narrows in on one. <laughs> Just one. Well, how is it that Jesus chose this one man out of the multitude that was there? Well, as to the one, we find that this is similar to the signs about which John has already written. There was only very few people at the wedding at Cana who were privileged to see that sign. And Nicodemus came all alone at night. It was years later before he made a public profession of faith in Jesus. The Samaritan woman was just one character. Your character. <laughs> now, true, she brought many to Christ. But they were all Samaritans, so it's not like the Jews were likely to ever hear what happened there. Well, until after Jesus rose from the dead. That's another thought. We better not go there or I'll be here all day. We, just last week, followed the life of the official and how he believed and his whole household joined him. But it was just those few of them. In each case, one or a few people. Like we said last week, it's better to work well with one person than to try to help many and fail. So, keep that in mind. But we still haven't answered our question. Why this particular one man? Well, this is how we can find out. What will this one guy do with this miracle? What will he do with it? Who will he tell? That's how we're going to find out why Jesus chose him. So, we must return to the story. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Uh, do you want to be healed? What? It's kind of obvious, Jesus, don't you think? And why would he say this? Well, first, understand that in every miracle that Jesus performs, everyone that's recorded in the Scripture, Jesus either asks for an action or he draws the person to act. At Cana, he said, fill the jars with water. Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. He demanded of Nicodemus, you must be born again. <laughs> that was a shocker. He asked the woman to draw out water and to bring her husband. You know, I've always wondered if some of her husbands were, was actually in the crowd that later came to Jesus. Have you ever wondered that? I don't know, maybe I'm just strange. It just interests me that that might have been. Of course, the official, he drew to him through the illness of his son and then asked him simply to believe and, well, leave. Go. Your son will live. That's what he said. So this question relates to that same demand for action. What's happening is it's designed to help this man overcome his own difficulties. 38 years 
of suffering. Probably made him kind of self-centered. You may have seen people like that. Probably made him demand sympathy. You, you, you should feel bad for me. You go to people and you say, can I help you? And instead of, well, yes, could you help me with this thing? No. You get to get the whole life history, you know. Well, I was six, and then when I was nine, and then I was twelve, and then and then fifteen, and then twenty, and then... Uh, it takes forty-five minutes to get to the point. What do you need now? Well, Jesus cuts through all of that. He just All the excuses, all the complaints, not, he just goes right to the issue. Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another steps down before me. Now, it feels like he's just barely able to remember he came here with this deep desire to be healed. But he doesn't have enough strength to help himself. Remember what we said about spiritual symbolism? You don't have enough strength to help yourself. And also this man, just has, he has no friends. Well, he kind of had become the permanent loser. You know, the complainer that nobody wanted to see anymore. I just, But still, there's this interesting note of respect. Sir, you know, sounds good to us, but in that culture, this was used as a deep sign of respect. It wasn't minor, it was big. Sir. From a man, by the way, who had been in his condition for longer than Jesus in his human form had been alive. You think about that? And yet, he's very respectful. And remember, he doesn't know who Jesus is yet. He doesn't know. He doesn't know that this is the author of the miraculous, as well as the providential. And yet, he shows this deep sign of respect. Well, you know, maybe there's some hope for this guy. I told you the sign related to all the rest. I'd like us to see a progression in Jesus' ministry. The first sign... Only his family and just a few friends saw. He only had a handful of disciples with him at that point. The second was a single Jewish leader. Then those Samaritans that no Jew would talk to. And next was that nominal Jew, the official, a Jew in name only. He didn't really believe until his son was sick. And now we get to our guy, so we've gone from people who were very close to Jesus all the way to people like this guy who is actually an apostate Jew. He didn't believe at all. Instead of following God, he's chasing superstitions. Where's the faith in God? He doesn't have it. And by the way, what a cruel superstition. Horribly cruel. Some centuries after John wrote his gospel, there was a commentary that was written by a scribe on the edge of his copy of the scripture and and it was accidentally included in the Greek text from which the King James Version of the Bible was translated. The ESV and other translations, they include it, but only to give us some historical background. We don't know if this is exactly what was going on, but whoever wrote the commentary thought it was, and maybe he's right. The lame man was waiting for the moving in the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. How incredibly cruel this is. Let's have a race. Let's pit all the invalids against each other. And whoever wins gets the surprise. Everyone else is a loser. Everybody else loses. It's a cruel race for a false hope 
of a cure. Sadly, this sort of story was common throughout the pagan world, but more sadly yet, it had been imported to the heart of Judaism. The Jews, who were supposed to be the people of God, let this sort of heartless superstition flourish right under their noses. Is there anybody that has a question? This does not sound like a God of love, does it? It just isn't. So why did they let it go? Why did they do something about it? Why would we let people believe in things like horoscopes, tarot cards, or statues that bleed, you know? Come on. If we love those we know who are trapped in superstition, if we love them enough, we should tell them that's not from God. We need to tell them of God and of His mercy and His grace. Maybe be direct, like Jesus was. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. <laughs> Pretty direct. And this is the command to which Jesus was driving. This is how the man was to act on the miracle. And by the way, this is a sign too. Remember, these are all signs, John said. Well, what? Isaiah prophesied, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf stop. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus' message in this sign was loud and clear to anyone who knew the Scriptures. Of course, you wouldn't even have to know the Scriptures to know that something special is going on here. I mean, open your eyes. It's not like lame people get up and walk every day. And our single invalid starts off right and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. I mean, yes! This is what he ought to have done. It was right to obey in simple childlike faith. Get up, take up your bed and walk. Our guy was probably poor, so taking his bed with him was important. I hike. If you don't bring your bed with you every day, <laughs> you got no place to sleep the next night. It's important. But that's not the only reason Jesus told him to take the bed up. In fact, probably not even the main reason. We only have to keep reading to get to the point. At once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Here's where the miracle begins to diverge from all the others. And you're thinking, hey, the Sabbath? What's different about that? One day or another day, who cares? Well, you'd, you'd think so, but why even mention the Sabbath? Remember that this twin pool was between the sheep gate and the temple. The gate and the temple were pretty close together with Bethesda in between. So it was probably only a few minutes later on the Sabbath with the man carrying his bed that he was accosted. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, <laughs> that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It is the Sabbath. Years before the centuries, actually, believing Jews in their zealousness to do all God's will 
had begun to discuss what the commandment to rest on the Sabbath meant. What was it okay to do on the Sabbath? What was definitely work that should be avoided on the Sabbath? Well, they made up their list. They got it all there, but in true fallen human form. <laughs> it didn't take long for these thoughts to become absolute rules. And of course, carrying a bed on the Sabbath was made illegal. The punishment? Death. Death. You could be killed for carrying your bed on the Sabbath. So, okay, we begin to understand our guy's very careful answer. Incredibly, though, these guys, these Jewish rulers who thought that they believed, but they had no idea what belief was, they decided that healing, miraculous healing, should be illegal on the Sabbath as well. Can you believe it? They worked it like this. This was not a life-threatening disease. We have this rule. Doctors may not practice medicine on the Sabbath unless the malady is life-threatening. Therefore, to perform a miraculous healing on the Sabbath when a person's life is not threatened is to break the Sabbath. He's, hey, you know, he's been sick for 38 years. What's another day? Wait a day. I think it's incredible. Basically, they're saying, you need to live by the rules we have laid down and you're not doing it. And that is unacceptable. They were so caught up with their rules that they missed the miracle. You may have heard that really thoughtless statement. Well, people only believe in miracles because they don't know they are impossible. <laughs> you try to catch people before they say something because it really shows a serious lack of careful thought. If being healed of lameness after 38 years was just normally possible, why would anyone get excited when it happened? If a miracle is not impossible, nobody's going to care. They're not even going to notice. So why didn't those guys care? Well, what's the point of a miracle? Miracles are evidence that something beyond the natural exists. Something supernatural is here. And those Jewish rulers should have known that that something is actually someone. They should have seen the Lord God in this. Instead, they condemned themselves by not recognizing the sign. As we said, the man was correct that if someone could heal him, he certainly had authority to command him to carry his bed on the Sabbath. Ah, but he failed when they accosted him. He tried to shift the blame onto Jesus. Ever heard anything like that? Maybe like Adam when he sinned? The woman that you gave me. <laughs> She's the reason I yeah, tried to blame God for his own foolish sin. Unlike the disciples and the servants who believed when he changed the water into wine, and Nicodemus who exhibited wondrous awe after Jesus said, you must be born again. The Samaritan woman not only believed, but brought many others who also came to believe. The official believed, and so did his whole household. But this guy, for 38 years, he had been excluded from the temple. 38 years. Can't go in when you're sick. And now, when he can finally get in, they want to kick him out again. It's hard not to blame him 
But the truth is, this guy crumbled under the pressure. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn that there was a crowd in the place. That also seems incredible to me, but it's true. He was so excited about his new healthy body that he forgot to keep his eyes on Jesus. He didn't pay attention to who it was that did it. When God blesses us, do we forget that He's the one who blessed us? Do we get proud because we're talented, or smart, or good-looking, or successful, or hopefully something else because I don't have a lot of that going for me. But whatever it is, do we get proud because we have what God blessed us with? They miss the wonder of the miracle because of their preconceived idea of how things should be. This is how it has to be. And how sad it is for those who can't see what God intends because they're so sure that they already know everything that He's going to do. <laughs> those Jewish leaders missed the big picture because they were looking at one brushstroke in the law. Their coldness, their desire to control according to their rules, caused them to miss the Son of God. Did our guy, this man miraculously healed after 38 years, did he miss the extra blessing he would have had if he had followed Jesus rather than men? Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Well, he went straight to the temple. That was good. For 38 years, he had been denied this privilege. So that's great. But why was he there? Did he come to worship God? We can hope. That would have meant sincerity of belief in his part. On the other hand, could it maybe be that this was just what all the important people did? The socially acceptable thing to do was to go to the temple. Maybe it wasn't about worshiping God. Sometimes when we help people, they seem to sincerely look to Christ. But when the pressure comes, uh, I told you this miracle was different than all the others. We're going to get to that. In Cana, Jesus kept the miracle as secret as he could. Almost nobody knew he met with Nicodemus. The Samaritans were that isolated group. Nobody but the official in his household actually knew, saw the healing of the son. But this sign Jesus wanted to be very public. You know what YouTube is? If you, if you make a YouTube video and millions of people watch it, they say it went viral. That's what Jesus wanted. <laughs> he wanted this to go viral. He wanted everybody to see it. Remember, Jesus sought him out. Okay, yeah, he did the Samaritan woman too, right? But not in the same way did he do it. He sought him out in the temple. Very, very public place. On the one hand, we can say, don't worry, people you help don't know you did it because you follow Jesus. He'll seek them out and let them know. Well, that is true, but that's really not what's going on here. And Jesus said, sin no more. That is not characteristic of Jesus' statements. He doesn't say that. None of those involved in any of the signs we've yet read have heard anything like this. Normally, Jesus was giving glory to the Father. That's what he wanted to do. 
So it forces us to ask some questions about this guy. Was his infirmity that he had for 38 years directly caused by some sin? I know all illness is ultimately caused by sin, that's true, but not necessarily a specific sin of the suffering person. It might be something else. Still, if you sin, my ordaining pastor, Andre Sims, used to say, you can choose a sin, but you can't choose the consequence. He first came to Christ when, as a teenager, he and some buddies decided to make some money. They were in high school. He wasn't able to get there, but his two buddies went to the house where they were going to buy and sell drugs. They didn't know it. Somebody had just called the guy in there and said, the cops are coming to you. They're coming right now. you got to get out of there. And then they knocked on the door and he took his shotgun and blew a hole in the door and one of the friends of Andre and the guy died. Got dead in an instant at 16 years of age. Needless to say, the other two guys, Andre and the other guy, came to Christ. <laughs> they realized, you can choose the sin, but you can't choose the consequence. Maybe Jesus isn't just warning the man against problems he might face in the world should he sin again. This warning could be about eternal punishment. Don't know. Specific sins have varying consequences, but all sin has consequences. So how does our guy do? Jesus meets him. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. <laughs> Ratted him out just like that. <laughs> no, no. He started so well. But then he sought the approval of men more than that of God. In all the other signs we've seen so far, the people responded well. They understood who Jesus is. So we're left to wonder... Did this man, did he feel like Peter? And he later come back to serve Jesus faithfully? Or did he fail like Judas? We all fail by denying Christ at some time. I don't think there's a Christian that's more than about five minutes Christian that hasn't failed God at some time. We all do. And it can cost us. To me, this is rather a scary scripture. Listen, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. There are lots of differing opinions as to the meaning of this verse, so keep that in mind. But it does seem John is speaking in his letter about a brother in the Christian sense. Someone who's going to make it to eternal life. That's who we're talking about. Wait. Someone who's going to die temporally? He's going he's to die out of this life because of sin? But he has eternal life. Whoa. Can you imagine dying? And then you're standing before Jesus. The next thing happens. You're standing before Jesus. And then you know he knows that you're there now because of the sin that you just did. <laughs> hmm, not, not the position we want to be in. <laughs> so let's think this out. If Christians can die, be taken out of this world because of sin, talking Christians here, what consequences might they face in this world because they continue to sin? 
maybe something worse than the malady that this man suffered for 38 years? Could be that's what Jesus is warning him. Of course, we are only human, so we can't know the condition of a man's soul. After Peter's denial of Jesus, it looked about the same really as Judas. But Peter allowed Jesus to draw him back. And he ended up as a great voice for Christ. Judas' betrayal was the working out of his unrepentant soul. He never returned to Jesus, ever. Well, if that's what's true with this man, then we would have to conclude that Jesus is using this man's evil nature to accomplish his plans. It is possible. I don't think so. I just can't see Jesus healing him when he knew he would spend eternity in hell. I think he was just weak, like Peter. He certainly didn't have the faith of the blind man that John shows us in chapter 9. I just love that story. That's a guy who gets it. Even in the midst of persecution, he gets it. Especially in the face of persecution. Mm. Which makes me ask, how, how strong is our faith? <laughs> but what about those rulers doing the persecuting? What about those who should have known better? those who outright rejected Jesus since he refused to play by their rules. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. One of the old commentators, Barnes, he said it this way, they opposed him, attempted to ruin his character, to destroy his popularity, and probably held him up before the people as a violator of the law of God. Instead of making inquiry whether he had not given proof that he was the Messiah, they assumed that he must be wrong and ought to be punished. Wow. The truth of the miracle they ignored. If you read in Acts, you find out this is a pattern. At one point they say, we cannot deny a miracle occurred, so how are we going to deal with this? These guys just don't get it. So Jesus brings the point into very clear focus. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus demonstrated his power when he made water into wine. He made his authority clear to Nicodemus. He blatantly told the Samaritan woman who he was. The official understood who he was when his son was healed. Why couldn't they see the obvious truth? of Jesus' nature in this miracle. Why couldn't they see it? My Father is working. Everyone agreed that God's work continues in sustaining the universe constantly, continuously. Obviously, that has to mean on the Sabbath as well. By saying, My Father, he was also claiming exemption from the Sabbath laws, which made it clear Jesus was claiming to be God. That he was Lord of the Sabbath. And the Jews got it. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus equals God. Clear enough? <laughs> Although they had 
loaded them down with excessive little added rules. They were right about the Old Testament law, but they missed that the lawgiver was with them. They listened instead to the whispers of Satan. The good act that Jesus did, it was a good act. That caused them to notice him. But what he said, they misunderstood his blasphemy, made them want to kill him. People notice us when we do good deeds. And they're great for that. They like us to do good deeds. It's a good thing. We should. But some won't like the message that we bring. Jesus did this miracle in the way he did, knowing that it would offend the Jews. So we do our good deeds. And now the time comes, we actually do have to tell them about Jesus to tell them the truth that comes. What's our duty concerning this truth? What should we know about people and the truth? Back to our friend Dr. Barnes. We are not to keep back truth because it may endanger us. I thought in our culture, well, maybe embarrass us. We don't really have too much danger. Number two, he says, we are not to keep back truth because it will irritate and enrage the sinners. The fault is not in the truth, but in the sinner. (laughs) Okay. But do remember, though, we do not fight against flesh and blood. They are not the enemy. They're the ones who need the help. But it doesn't make the sin less sin. Number three, when any one portion of truth enrages hypocrites, they will be enraged the more they hear. Hypocrites are a special case. Our guys, rulers in Jerusalem, they are hypocrites. They get much more angry. They want to kill Jesus. Now, I know we've all played the hypocrite at some time. So we kind of have a clue. But that doesn't make us hypocrites. In this case, Jesus did this miracle in the way he did, knowing that it would and intending to offend the Jews. He did it on purpose. Well, what do we say? Well, first, you need to watch for Jesus (laughs) in kind of unlikely places. You just never know. We know that we are now God's house, that Scripture is very clear. The temple of God is us. We're, that's it. We don't go to a temple. We don't go to a house to worship God. We're it. We are the house of God. So, why don't we be a house of grace? A house of mercy? In other words, do our good work and we'll let God worry about the outcome. That might include correcting people's mistakes. Especially getting their understanding of truth in the right place, maybe helping someone to move away from a superstition. And unlike our poor guy who I hope did well later, I think he did, let us not fail to stand for Jesus when the pressure's on. We have to stand for Jesus no matter the cost. Speaking the truth, even if they decide to kill us, we're not likely to run into that, but still... Sabbath or not, you know, we gotta speak the truth. And some will completely miss 
the work of Jesus because they are so sure they know how everything works. I've seen people watch new Christians and seen them change. Their whole life changes. And somebody said, oh, did they get some money or what happened that they're better now? (laughs) How can you miss it? How could you miss it? But they do. They miss it. It goes right over their heads. And then sometimes, well, we get in a position where we have no choice but to stand for the truth. We can do nothing else. We have to. And I wonder, what would happen in your world, in your world, the people you know, the place you are, where you are, in your world, what would happen if you always stood for Jesus? What would happen if I always stood for Jesus? And what would happen in our church if we all sought to do the work of the Father no matter what? This place would change. The world would change. Politics coming up right now, another election coming up, and it's important. But the truth is, if every Christian helped one person to come to Christ, in one year, America would be a Christian nation again. In two years, the vast majority of America would be Christian, and you wouldn't have to worry about all those political things you worry about now. What would happen if all the church really did do the work of the Father, no matter what? It would change the world. I kind of think it's going to happen. I do. I think that God is doing something, and I think we're going to see a third great awakening. America's had two already. I think we're ready for a third one. I, I really do think we're going to see people say, you know what? I need a stand. Gotten too far. Maybe a stand. Might as well start with us. We change the world from in Westport. Not hard. Only takes one person. We can do it. Let's pray.